Hello, and welcome to Proximity Health's first podcast of 2022. I'm Lee Blancett, and today we're speaking with Dr. Michael Kologi. Dr. Kologi is an ultimate oncology insider. While a partner with New York Oncology Hematology, he served as the chair of U.S. Oncology's P&T Committee. He then jumped the fence to spend nearly a decade working with Aetna, where he was the national medical director of the insurance company's oncology solutions program, after which he joined Flatiron Health, where he toiled as the EMR vendor's national medical director for payer strategies. He is now a VP and the chief innovation officer for the consulting firm AdV. Our podcast expands upon a panel discussion addressing vertical payer integration that Dr. Kloji led at ACCC's Cancer Center Business Summit in March. We've divided this discussion into two parts to ease listening. Starting out, I'd like to quickly explain Proximity Health's view of what's going on in the healthcare sector. The sector began a long wave of provider consolidation that began in the 1990s and is still rolling ahead, albeit at a slower rate than in previous years. During this phase, which we label Consolidation 1.0, hospitals began to acquire physician practices and directly employ doctors. As of 2021, nearly half of U.S. physicians were employed by an integrated delivery network in some approach or another. This was even more pronounced among oncologists, where perhaps 60% of practices are now owned by a hospital-centric IDN. A new wave, which we've labeled Consolidation 2.0, began about five to 10 years ago. In this wave, the middlemen of the healthcare sector began consolidating vertically with insurance companies buying PBMs, specialty pharmacies, 340B TPAs, disease management companies, and more recently, providers. While provider acquisitions typically focus on primary care, they can also include oncology providers. Most recently, we've seen the emergence of a further trend, which we label 2.1. 2.1 includes benefit plans that encourage the use of telehealth, remote monitoring, and other virtual interactions in place of an actual in-person visit with a physician or other provider. Let's get started. Dr. Kloji, how do you view these recent developments? You know, I I think as we discussed in the panel, there are probably 2.1, 2.2s, things like delegation of risk to organizations like Paul Martino's Village MD, right? Or maybe even delegation of subcontracting risk to organizations like Minute Clinics, for example. And I think that this is really the case. It's no longer just whether or not you work for a hospital, right? I think the vertical integration within the payer space has opened up other opportunities. And and I also think that the kind of the vanilla hospital acquisition, it gets a lot more complicated when the hospital itself is, for example, a part of an integrated delivery network is doing what City Hope is doing, for example. But, you know, so yes, I would say that the construct that you have laid out, I, I think is correct. But it, it probably is a little bit less linear with a few other complicating branch points. So you point out it can be more, there are different iterations to this or different nuances. How would you see the vertical consolidation being different between a relatively simple, you know, small IDN versus a potentially a big network play like City of Hope? I think the biggest issue is how much control. How much influence are you willing to take on if you're in multiple markets, for example? Right. It gets to be really complicated because, you know, that old adage that healthcare is local, it's really true, right? I mean, there are things you can do in certain markets that you just can't do in other words. You know, how much are you willing to try to 
I hate to say micromanage. I'm not even sure that that's the right term. How much you're willing to dictate, regulate, control, influence. At this point, so we understand healthcare is local. So you've got the vertical integration, depends on which IDN and where. What are some of the, the challenges that you might see influencing one market's progression on this versus another? I mean, for instance, Boston is highly consolidated. The oncologists pretty much work for a couple of large provider organizations. And then in Florida, the market is maybe a little bit less consolidated and headed that towards less consolidation, maybe. So let's just take Village as, as one example. I think the challenge that any of these 2.0 organizations, be they Optum or another a national health plan that is partnering with a Village MD or a Minute Clinic, the, the biggest challenge they have is membership density. So they have to have enough uh, members in a given market for them to successfully manage the cost of care for the parent organization. So let's just take Florida as an example. You know, all of the big national health plans, especially all of the big national health plans that have a Medicare Advantage product, have a lot of membership. And so they have enough for it to matter. On the other hand, many of the large national health plans have very little membership in Massachusetts, and it's harder for it to matter. So that's one element. The second element is, what does the competitive landscape among providers look like? And, and what I mean by that is, especially, what do the hospital-based providers look like, and how powerful are they? So uh, again, we're a great example, Florida versus Massachusetts, right? Florida, a lot of community providers, one big cancer center in Tampa, a big hospital system in Miami, a medium-sized hospital system in Central Florida, a lot of competition, though, good place for them to try to manage where patients are receiving their care and how they're receiving their care and the associated cost. Massachusetts, much harder. Uh, you know, oncologists in, in Boston that aren't affiliated with the partner system are rare. I mean, you've got the tough sell plan, but beyond those two, man, forget about it. So if you go in there, right, it's really hard, really hard to influence how care is being delivered because those guys, I hate to use the word monopoly, but they got a monopoly. So I think when, when we were talking at the meeting, we talked about this being a network play, right? So when traditionally health plans have thought about networks of physicians, they really have thought about, number one, are the doctors good enough? I won't say they're good. Good enough is good enough. And then second of all, are they willing to do some sort of discount? Are they willing to sign the contract? And that was it. That was the network play. But here, oh, it's much, uh, it's much different because what you're doing really is narrowing the number of physicians that you want to take care of your patients. And in some places, you can do that. And in other places, not so much. Now, it's clear, right, that if you can succeed in doing that in any given market, you could have you, the kind of consolidated organization, can have serious influence on how care is delivered. And I mean everything from where CAT scans and PET scans and MRIs get done to who's your radiation oncologist of choice to what your formulary is. All those things all of a sudden come into play 
because those providers in those geographies, they want to have a good relationship with you because it's in their best interest to retain those patients. And if you're on the outside, you're not going to do so well. Okay. So I guess what you're saying is where you've got a lot of provider market consolidation, there won't be much opportunity for these folks because they just will not be able to access a sufficient number of either lives or providers? Yeah, I think that's generally true. I would say talking to an organization like Topa or Florida Cancer is probably a little bit different than talking to MD Anderson, but because those types of organizations come to the table with different expectations in terms of, you know, what kind of contract they're willing to negotiate and sign. But yes, I think that's exactly right. I think less provider consolidation and especially less strength in the hospital and hospital-based providers makes it a lot easier for these kind of vertically integrated organizations to succeed. Okay. And so this would include not only the Optum version of 2.0, but also the Village MD Miniclinic. Um, oh, yeah. Health. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, the Optum relationship with those oncologists is a straight, solid line. And the, <laughs> the relationship between the subcontracted oncologists that work for Village MD or Express or Miniclinic, that's a dotted line. But it's still ultimately how much influence will the parent consolidated organization have on how care is delivered? That is key for them to succeed in this. And if those parent organizations can convince, for example, large self-insured employers that they're going to get a better price and hopefully better quality, then there's absolutely no reason for them not to want to do that. But again, it's very market specific. The dynamics may vary tremendously by market. So using, going back to your analogy of solid versus dotted lines, how would Optum go about influencing treatment decisions and the overall care of a cancer patient with that solid line that they have? Well, I think, you know, if you think about what the cost centers are for a patient receiving treatment for cancer, let's just start with number one. What's the most expensive hospital in your area? And negotiating a discounted day rate or percent of bill charges contract so that your patients are preferentially admitted, I think that's one. I I mentioned where scans are done. Obviously, freestanding imaging centers are a lot cheaper than hospital-based imaging centers. You don't do MRI scans in the hospital. You just don't do it. And then formulary. So formulary is the most interesting one because there are easy things that they can do. And we know they're easy because they're already doing them with physicians who are not owned by Optum, right? They pay for a biosimilar. That's it. There is a preferred agent. If you use the non-preferred agent, you don't get paid. So for biosimilars, for example, they can profoundly restrict. The whole argument about whether it's an interchangeable biosimilar or not, it matters not here. This is not a discussion about that. If the physician agrees that that's their preferred biosimilar, that's their preferred biosimilar. Then we get the interesting question about drugs in class. So we're not necessarily talking about all the debate around protected classes and whether every drug needs to be. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about preferred formulary. So could they have a preferred IO treatment? 
for a given disease? And the answer is, why not? Sure they could. Of course they could. Those physicians are employed by that organization. Just as when you work for a hospital, they have a preferred formulary for the medicines that are given in the hospital. Now, the real question is, if you get down to the dotted line relationships, to what extent can they do that? And that remains to be seen. That is a really good question. Because it may be, for example, that if I'm Village MD, uh, I'm saying to myself, well, I could do one of two things. Number one is I could only contract with practices that achieve a certain percent compliance with my formula. Or that would be the stick version. The carrot version would be I reward practices that are compliant with my formulary a certain percentage of the time. But either way, you achieve the same goal, which is you restrict formula. So in the case of Optum, basically, you're running the EMR, you're employing the doctors, so the doctors yeah. see what they want you to see. Yeah, very, very straight. Just like the issue with hospital, uh, you know, this, it's so funny because back in my past lives, when I went to visit ACOs, and these were, you know, first-generation ACOs, they didn't really understand that the way for them to really win is to aggressively manage their subspecialty care. Or as I learned that in my time at Aetna, you don't save money on healthy people. The way to save money is to aggressively manage high burden of illness, chronic medical conditions, you know, the, the diseases that cost you a lot of money. So if I'm Optum, you, the doctor that you work for me, you don't get to pick where the CAT scan's done. That's just not how we work. We do CAT scans where we have a preferred relationship unless there's extraordinary extenuating circumstance. And I know that sounds harsh, but when I talk about network play, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So I understand the formulary topic. Obviously, Optum can have its own formulary. But how does Village MD or Carbon Health, any of these guys, get involved in a formulary? I mean, do they have formularies? I think ultimately, Village MD is going to have to make some choices about what subspecialists they want to subcontract with. And right. When they determine how much to pay those subcontracted entities, you could do it one of two ways, both of which achieve the same thing. You could capitate or develop a case rate, either one. And you could say, look, guys, you get a patient with breast cancer. This is how much you're going to get paid. In which case, the practice will have to internally wrestle with how they're going to manage formulae. Or for my previous life, what pathways to follow? Because, of course, pathways are a way of achieving preferred regimens, right? Preferred formulary placement. Or you could have a preferred formulary. And again, listen, because Village and, and Walgreens are so close to one another, you have to think of this as a possibility. Because mini clinics don't exist without yeah. CVS and Aetna. They have the expertise in-house to think about what a preferred formulary might look like, and export that information to the practice. Yeah, it requires certain compliance level to remain a part of the network or to reward or penalize the practice, right? So that's not hard to do. You know, I think as I look back on the work I did a long time ago on pathways, I would say exactly how pathways enter into this discussion is clearly undergoing changes now because pathways were never really a way 
to manage formulary, but I assure you, the payers are thinking of pathways as a way to more aggressively manage for So pathways are sticky, they're complicated, they're a lot of work to yep. keep updated. Do you see the, the Carbon Health, the Village MDs, the outfits like that, having the bandwidth to actually get involved in developing pathways, or are they going to buy pathways, or how do you see that playing out? Well, I, I think it depends on what health plan they ultimately partner with. So for example, you know, we talked about Optum. There's no doubt Optum can build their own bathroom. I mean, this is not, I mean, really. They could partner with an, a third party, somebody who has pathway experience, or their parent organization could provide the content. I mean, I, I don't think that's a particularly challenging problem. I think not at all. Okay, but would you see the ones who aren't affiliated with Optum or the other big players, again, back to say Carbon Health, which is at least as of now completely independent, is it even feasible for those guys to get into this business or are they just going to look to capitate and let the doctors worry about it? Yeah, the issue with capitation is that the risk of failure and the consequences of failure of your contracted practices could be profound. Then you lack network adequacy if they fall apart, right? So, you know, there's probably more than one way to skin a cat, right? I mean, this is just, the, to me, the most straightforward one. We've reached the end of the first part of our podcast. In this part, we discussed how vertically integrated payers and their employed physicians will seek to control costs through tightly managing specialty care, including oncology. The final part of this podcast will build on the discussion and develop a point of view about where the future may take us in Consolidation 2.0 and 2.1.